thing I'm most interested in right now is uh, become a kind of crusade uh, against uh, correlational statistical analysis, in particular what's called multiple regression analysis, where uh, you want to find out whether taking vitamin E is associated with lower prostate cancer risk, and uh, you look at the correlational evidence, and indeed it turns out that uh, men who take vitamin E uh, have lower risk for prostate cancer. Uh, but then someone says, well, let's see if we do the actual experiment, what happens? And what happens when you do the experiment is that vitamin E contributes to the likelihood of prostate cancer. Uh, how could there be differences? And these happen a lot. Uh, the correlational, the observational evidence tells you one thing. The experimental evidence tells you something completely different. Uh, in the case of health uh, data, uh, the big problem is something that's come to be called the um, healthy user bias. Because the guy who's taking vitamin E is also doing everything else right. I mean, he's somebody, a doctor, or an article told him to take vitamin E, so he does that. But he's also the guy who's watching his weight, who's watching his cholesterol, who gets plenty of exercise, uh, and um, uh, drinks alcohol in moderation, doesn't smoke, and so on, and has high level of education and a high level uh, income. All of these things are uh, likely to make you live longer, make you less subject to morbidity and mortality risks of all kinds. Uh, so you pull one thing out of that correlate, and it's it's going to it's going to look like well that, that this is great. I mean, vitamin E is terrific because it's dragging all these other good things along with it. Uh, but it's not by any means limited to, to uh, health issues. Uh, a while back. Uh, I read in the New York Times uh, a report, government report, on the safety of automobiles. Uh, and uh, the measure that they used uh, was the deaths per million drivers of each of these autos. Uh, and it turns out that, for example, uh, there are hugely more deaths of people who drive Ford F-150 pickup, uh, enormously more than uh, for people who drive Volvo station wagons. Uh, most people's reaction, that's certainly my initial reaction to it, is, well, well that you know, sort of figures. Everybody knows that Volvos are safe. But uh, then let's think about, uh, let's describe two people, and, and you tell me who you think is more likely to be driving uh, the Volvo, who is more likely to be driving the pickup, uh, a suburban matron uh, in uh, 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 New York uh, area, uh, or uh, a 25-year-old cowboy uh, in Oklahoma. And it's obvious that uh, people are not assigned their cars. We don't say, yeah, Billy, you'll be driving a powder blue uh, Volkswagen, uh, a Volvo uh, station wagon. Uh, and because of this self-selection problem, you simply can't interpret data like that. You know really virtually nothing about the relative safety of cars. Or I saw in the New York Times recently an article 
by a respected writer um, reporting that people who have elaborate weddings tend to have marriages that last longer. Um, and your mind starts, well, how would that be? Well, I don't know. Maybe it's just all the darned expense and bother. You don't want to get divorced. It's a cognitive dissonance thing. Well, let's think about who it is who makes elaborate plans for expensive weddings. It's people who are better off financially, uh, which is by itself a good prognosis for marriage, uh, longevity. Uh, it's uh, people who are more educated, also better prognosis, people who are richer, people who are older. Uh, the later you get married, the more uh, likelihood that the marriage will last, and so on. So the truth is you've learned nothing. It's like saying men who's, who are a somebody, 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 the third or fourth have longer lasting marriages. Uh, well, is that, gee, is it because of the suffix there? Is that one? No, it's because these people are people for who have a good prognosis for a lengthy marriage. Uh, but a huge range of science projects are done with these multiple regression things. The results are some, often somewhere between meaningless and quite damaging. I mean, I'm going to take vitamin E because that's the correlate there is good. So what I've gotten interested in doing is, uh, I'm no statistician. Uh, I found that social psychologists, my fellow social psychologists, the very smartest ones, will do these silly multiple regression studies. I mean, showing that uh, the, uh, the uh, more that basketball team members touch each other, um, the, uh, the, the better the, the uh, record of win and loss. I hope that in the future, if I'm successful in communicating with people about this, that there'll be a kind of upfront warning uh, in New York Times articles, oh, these data are based on multiple regression analysis, which really would be a sign that you probably shouldn't read the article because you're not, you're, you're, you're quite likely to get non-information or, uh, or misinformation. Uh, so knowing that the technique is terribly flawed uh, and asking yourself the question, which you shouldn't have to ask yourself because you ought to be told by the journalist <clears throat> what generated these data. If it's uh, subject to self-selection effects uh, or to con confounded variable effects, you should probably ignore them. Uh, but what I most want to do is to, is to blow the whistle on this and stop scientists from doing this kind of, of thing. Uh, and as I say, the very best social psychologists don't understand, many of them don't understand this point. So I want to do uh, an article which will describe verbally in something like the way I have now what the problem is. And I'm going to work with a statistician who can do all the formal stuff. And hopefully it will be published in some outlet that will reach scientists in all fields and also uh, uh, buyer beware uh, for, uh, for the general reader. So it's just understanding that the technique is, is, is deeply flawed uh, and being alert to the possibility that the study you're reading about has the self-selection or confounded variable problems that are characteristic of multiple regression. Well, health statistics in general, what's correlated with, with health, you should be extremely dubious about.
um, unless it's explicitly stated that it's a, an experimental study. Uh, for decades, there were reports coming out about the correlation between uh, heart um, uh, health and uh, hormone replacement therapy for menopausal women. And the studies ranged from there's no association to there's really quite a strong association such that the more uh, of these, uh, uh, the more you are likely you are to take uh, hormone replacement therapy, the better your heart health. Uh, and someone finally does the experiments and it turns out it actually worsens heart health. Um, so uh, why is that? Well, it's because relatively well-off women, it's the healthy user bias. The doctor says you might try hormone replacement therapy. More educated women with more money are doing it. They have better heart uh, conditions to begin with. Um, so you get this false correlation. Um, and uh, once the studies, the experiments were done, it becomes clear that hormone replacement therapy is bad for your cardiovascular system. Uh, and unfortunately, hundreds of thousands of women, meanwhile, uh, had had the treatment. Uh, so the, the, uh, the consequences of this junk research are enormous. Uh, and uh, um, I'm trying to find ways to get people to stop doing it and to make the general reader aware that they have to ask themselves, do I think that this is a correlational study or is it an actual experiment? Uh, well, uh, I guess it, at, the, at the beginning, social psychology was about attitudes and groups. That's the main things that were studied for a decade or two. Uh, and then at some point, uh, about the beginning of the cognitive revolution, uh, people who called themselves cognitive scientists weren't really dealing with human cognition. Uh, they were dealing with memory and perception and so on, sort of hard-nosed type of stuff. And so they, there was this field that had been abandoned, that is, how, how do people think? Uh, and uh, cognitive social psychology really became dominant in the field, which is how do people think, how do they reason, how do they uh, make sense of other people, um, how, and then the field of personality psychology, about the same time that social psychology was moving cognitive, uh, it was also moving into the territory of personality psychologists uh, and basically saying that uh, the claims by personality psychologists of consistent, powerful individual differences are simply mistaken. Uh, the, the great breaking point in all of this was actually not by a social psychologist, it was by Walter Michel, who was a clinical psychologist. Uh, and he pointed out how very weak uh, our predictions can be, even from having a whole, let's say, personality profile of someone based on lots of questions, how extroverted is Joe versus, uh, versus Jim. Uh, and uh, the predictability runs at most to a correlation, tune of a correlation of about 0.3, which <clears throat> is not a very strong relationship at all. At the level of one situation to another, how extroverted is Bill 
in situation A uh, and how extroverted is he in situation B. That correlation runs about 0.1, which means it's about 53% about chance that you would get it right as to whether uh, the more extroverted person in situation one would be the more extroverted person in situation two. And that was a huge battle between social psychologists took up the Michelle position. Uh, and what we uh, confronted the personality view with, which is the lay, primarily the, the way that the lay person understands human behavior. Um, so no, it's, it's situational factors, it's context, uh, and it's the cognitive interpretation of the context you find yourself in that's driving behavior. And so uh, for, well, I'd say, a decade, uh, social psychologists, uh, many of them, were focusing on the power of the situation, uh, trivial-seeming things that turn out to be completely determinative of uh, a person's behavior. And I must say, uh, of late, uh, some of the situational factors that people examine look even more trivial. Uh, they make us look silly. I mean, if I ask you to read a persuasive communication while you're standing on a wharf or uh, in a, uh, a seafood store smelling fish, uh, you're less persuaded uh, by the persuasive communication because seems fishy to you. <laughs> uh, and this, it turns out, only works in cultures where there is an expression, uh, this looks fishy to me. It doesn't work in Denmark where the expression is, I smell a rat. So, well, so there is something of a crisis in, in science in general, that the, the question of replicability, uh, I mean, there are claims that seem to be impossible, like 85% of all medical uh, experiments don't replicate. I mean, how, I take the pill, don't take the pill, and it doesn't replicate? I, mean, I, don't, under, I don't understand that. Uh, in my field, there's the claim by the people who have been doing the replication to see uh, their intent was to find out exactly how bad is the problem in social psychology. They find that two-thirds of the studies don't replicate. Um, well, I, I'm completely baffled by that. I, I don't know what it means. I mean, I, first of all, a, a, a lot of the studies they looked at were these studies which have some trivial-seeming manipulation. That's um, kind of embarrassing that it would have an, an effect on us. Um, but you would expect them to be somewhat unstable. Um, to take an example of, uh, of one that seems not to be very highly replicable, it's the, the, the granddaddy of them all by John Barge. Uh, students hear the words cane, Florida, gray, and then they walk more slowly out of the, uh, out of the laboratory. Uh, and that sometimes replicates and sometimes doesn't. But uh, the whole point about a trivial fleeting stimulus um, that might be powerful is that in a slightly different context or when the person's attention is slightly different, uh, it may not, uh, you may not get the, the effect. But the most important thing is when this started coming out, 
Because in my career, this doesn't happen. You know, say, well, you know, Joe's study doesn't replicate. No kidding. I mean, it, I, I challenged my colleagues, I've, I've done this to two dozen now, said, tell me a study in social psychology which, when it came out, seemed interesting and important, and then it didn't turn out to replicate. Um, and nobody gives you one just right off the top of their head. Well, how about Daryl Bim's Truth Light Lie Light study? Uh, and that apparently doesn't replicate. It seemed interesting and important. We now have dozens of experiments which make the same general point that you pick up a cue, in this case you've been telling lies or telling the truth, depending on what color light is on, and then the experiment is over and you're asked to, uh, to give a, an, an attitude, uh, express an attitude, and one of those lights is on, just sort of incidentally, and you tend not to be as confident about what you're saying if it was the lie light that was on. That apparently, as I say, it doesn't replicate, but the general point, some minimal seeming cue, which gets into the stream of behavior um, and, and has an impact, uh, we have hundreds of those studies. Many individual ones which are not highly replicable. But, you know, physiologists sometimes will go to somebody else's lab for months to find out how you, ha how you get the preparation. How do you get the preparation right so that you can find some effect? So, um, but nothing, nothing rides on a single failure, even when you, when you do have uh, a failure or replication. I mean, I, I have a text in social psychology, and when this you know, replication concern came out, I just started thumbing through the text and seeing how many of the assertions we make about human behavior in that text rest on a single experiment and nothing. I mean, it's, it's almost, uh, I mean, we may sometimes describe a particular example, a particular experiment as an example of some point. And that particular experiment might not replicate, but the, but the theory that the experiment exemplifies uh, has been um, uh, established in any number of, of different uh, experimental contexts. So there's tremendous redundancy in what we're telling the public about human behavior, though it may not be actually the case that uh, in general you can tell a bunch of college students uh, words about uh, that remind them of old folks and they'll be walking more slowly. There are many studies like that. Take an example of an acute study. Um, I don't know whether it replicates or not, but it wouldn't be surprising if it didn't. You put uh, three dots over the coffee urn, and the dots are in the position two up, one down. Uh, which is sort of vaguely reminiscent of a human face, two eyes and a mouth. Uh, and you watch to see how many people leave money in the honest box when, they, when those dots are there. And people leave more money in the honest box when the dots, sort of reminiscent of a face, looking at them are there. If you invert that thing, and you have the two dots on the bottom and the one dot on top, it has no effect. <laughs> now, uh, 
Would that always have an effect? Well, I don't know. If, if you have loud music playing and many people in a room, that probably you know, might not have any effect. The people don't notice it. It has a minimal effect. So if that failed to replicate, it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be surprising, and it wouldn't shake your faith in the idea that minimal cues, which ought to have no part in determining your behavior, uh, do have an impact. The single thing I've done that uh, has gotten the most notice uh, was my work showing with Tim Wilson um, that uh, we have very little access uh, to the cognitive processes that go on that produce our behavior. Um, that we are constantly being influenced by things that we don't recognize uh, have had an influence and that are often sometimes embarrassing to know it. I mean, it, that isn't why we don't, we're unaware of them. We're unaware of them because we don't have access to our cognitive process. We claim that we do. We claim, I, you ask me why I do something, I'll, I'll give you an answer, although uh, you'll probably believe it more than I will because I don't, I, I'm so aware of the extent to which we're, uh, we're unaware uh, of what goes on. I'll give an example of the experiment we did. We have a, two experiments. In the first experiment, it's a, uh, a, a learning experiment. People memorize word pairs, and uh, there might be a pair like uh, uh, ocean, moon, for some subjects. And then we're through with that experiment. Thank you very much. And this other fellow has this other experiment. And we just want free association. We want you to give an example of something in a category we give you. So one of the categories we give is name a laundry detergent. And people are much more likely to mention Tide uh, if they've seen that ocean-moon pair. Um, you ask them, you know, why did you come up with that? Why, just mention, why did you say Tide? They say, well, uh, that's what my mother uses. Or uh, I like the Tide box. Uh, and you say, well, do you remember learning that word pair ocean-moon? Oh, yeah. Do you suppose that could have had an influence? Oh, no, I don't think I just... Um, so, and there's nothing hothouse or, un, or unusual about these studies. I mean, that, that's life. I mean, we're constantly... You give people an orange pen to uh, answer a consumer uh, survey, uh, what their preferences are, and they'll give you more... Uh, they'll, they'll circle more of the orange products uh, if they're using an orange pen. I mean, um, so, so at any rate, and would, they, would that, you obtain that in all circumstances? I don't, I don't know whether you would or not. Well, I'll give you an example of, of two of the things that I've done that uh, have gotten some notice where they came from. When I was in college, I had bad insomnia. It's couldn't get to sleep. And uh, uh, what would happen is that I'd lie in bed and I'd start worrying about my relationship with someone or about the hour exam. And then I'd <clears throat> get more and more worked up about it. Eventually I'm hot. I'm throwing off all the covers, tossing and turning. <clears throat> um, and uh, very early in my career I said, you know, I, want, I wonder if you couldn't break this pattern, this escalating pattern of worrying about something and more aroused and the arousal is 
evidence to you about how worked up you are about this thing. If we gave people insomniacs a pill to take at bedtime, and we said, now, we're interested in uh, people's dream content, and we want to see how it will be affected by this pill we're going to have you take, which will cause your heart uh, to, uh, to pound a little more, more uh, irregularly, a little faster, your breathing to come more shallow and more, and more rapid. You might find yourself getting warm, sweaty palms and so on. In other words, the, the physiological symptoms of arousal. So people who take a pill and they're given that in, those instructions get to sleep more quickly. Uh, so uh, it turns out that uh, you can interrupt this, this vicious cycle by getting people to attribute the arousal to something non-emotional. So that, that's just a personal experience, understanding what's going on with me, uh, and then Kurt and then Stanley Schachter's work on uh, the extent of which we don't understand the origins of our arousal. We can misattribute it. Uh, this seemed to be a natural study. Incidentally, this study just turns out to be quite interesting in the context of non-replicability because this study got done and it was instantly recognized. Gee, that's interesting and it's potentially important. It has therapeutic implications and how SIBOs should be treated and so on. In fact, federal regulations after this study was done uh, changed about how you have to describe uh, symptom effects. Uh, but nobody could replicate it. Uh, and this astonished me because this was back when I really used to comb over data. I mean, I knew exactly what the heck when I didn't depend on the, on the student. I knew exactly what the, it was. There was no question in my mind that the, what, was, what I thought was going on was going on. The effect was real. But there it is. And after several years, somebody said, I know why your insomnia experiment doesn't replicate. And I said, why is that? Well, he looked at people's need for cognition. Some people like to think, thinking much more. And people who have high need for cognition, insomniacs who have high need for cognition, show your effect. And those who don't have high need for cognition don't show the effect. And the initial study had been at, done at Yale. <laughs> and all of the subsequent studies were done at places where you'd have people that you wouldn't expect to be quite so interested in thinking. Anyway, so another example. Um, I didn't get a terribly good uh, K-12 education. I, I grew up in El Paso, Texas. Uh, and I've actually always regarded this as a, a strength for me because I, uh, I didn't have to do a lot of homework. So I, I would read books when I got home and I would sit in class and fantasize about the books I was going to read. Uh, and in college, I took an American literature course. And that's great. Get to do uh, get credit for stuff that uh, I would do anyway. And after a while, I'm reading these books. I mean, early American literature. I mean, Moby Dick. Oh my God! Uh, as Dorothy Parker said, more than you really want to know about whales. And all. And I, I'm not enjoying myself. It's 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 work. And I said, this is this is crazy. Why am I not enjoying myself? It's because the thing is, I have defined what I'm doing as work. If I was defining it as play, as recreation, uh, it would have been much more fun. So can you get? So the question then becomes, can you get people to do something in a mood where they're thinking that it's essentially work? It's something they're doing in order to get something else, 
or versus something that they're doing as an expressive thing. It's, they're doing it because it's fun. Uh, so with Mark Lepper, we looked at uh, nursery school kids. We put out a what at the time was a special kind of uh, pen, or magic markers is what they were, uh, that the kids had not seen before. We put that out on a table on one day and we watched how much each kid uh, played with the magic markers. Uh, and then a week or so after that, a nice man comes up to each of the kids and says, uh, you remember the magic markers that were here a week or so ago? Uh, well, uh, I, I would like to see what kinds of kid, uh, pictures kids would draw with these. And if you would be willing to draw some pictures with me, uh, for me, with these magic markers, um, I could give you this Good Player Award. See, it has a place for your name and a gold seal and a blue ribbon hanging down. Would you like to have a chance to get that? Yeah, all of them do, of course. Or we don't offer them anything. Uh, or, uh, and then uh, they come back. Uh, we bring, we come back a couple of weeks after that. Magic markers are out again. They haven't been there for a long time. And we look at how much kids draw with the magic markers. And the ones who have contracted to draw with the magic markers, uh, who've made a bargain that they can get this other thing if they use that, play with the magic markers half as much as the kids who were not offered this contract. And it isn't just something about the certificate, because kids that we didn't make a contract with, we just say, oh, thanks, those are great. Uh, I want to give you this award. Now, see, it's a place for your name and so on. Uh, those kids are just like the control kids. It isn't that there's something bad about getting the award. It's that something uh, bad about uh, contracting, about framing the thing as work. Interestingly, about three or four other people had the idea at the same time, I don't know what their, I would be very interested to know what their intuitions were that made them come up with this idea. And uh, uh, the, basic, the basic idea is you can undermine intrinsic motivation with reward. And this has become a, a, a kind of a staple in education. People understand this, uh, a lot of them. It's, it's, it's a, that you, you probably want to get behavior without resorting to reward if you can. It turns out, the very large literature and all this, now, there are some exceptions to it. If you, for example, give your reward um, uh, to people who wouldn't have engaged in an activity to begin with, and you have to use the reward, and it's something that does have intrinsic merit, then you can you can trigger a process of getting people to do something, and gee, I, they sort of like it. You don't have to keep up the rewards. At any rate, there's lots of, of uh, there's lots of, of uh, additional uh, information. But the basic idea has has stood up. Uh, and by the way, as an example of these kind of experiments, people, you look at that, everybody says, gee, that's interesting. And if it's true, it's important. I don't know of any failures to replicate that study. There are by now dozens of studies showing you can turn play into work. I mean, it's, uh, and the study that I was talking about earlier about in, insomnia, that turns out to be a highly unstable effect. I mean, it depends on a particular um, 
uh, a, a particular type of person uh, to get it, and couldn't have known that, but I mean, that turns out to be the case. Uh, but the general point that people can misattribute their physiological arousal uh, and become uh, <clears throat> uh, more or less emotional as a result of that misattribution, that's been shown, I mean, scores of times, dozens of different kinds of contexts. My favorite being, you put people, uh, guys, uh, answering a, a survey with a very attractive female uh, interviewer, and they either do that standing on a swaying suspension bridge over a thousand foot deep gorge, or they do it on terra firma. And you, the dependent measure is, do they try to date this woman? <laughs> if, if they answered the questionnaire standing on the swaying bridge, they find this woman extremely attractive, and they're much more likely to want to try to date her. So the arousal that's produced by this terror gets misattributed. I mean, apropos of money, an extrinsic reward. I was at a, um, a uh, economic forum, World Economic Forum meeting, and I was on a panel of people who were um, to think of ways to make people behave in their own interests and in society's interests. And there were economists and psychologists and political scientists and physicians and so on. And one word kept coming up over and over and over again. So you incentivize, you incentivize, and usually it was money. So that's where my reaction is, you know, I hear the word incentivize. I say, well, if imagination fails, incentivize. I mean, there are so many more ways of getting, I mean, social psychologists, and this is a kind of you know, a tremendously important contribution of, of the field, how to get people to do what's in their own interest, in society's interest. One of the, the absolutely the, the, the most powerful way that we have in general is to uh, create social influence situations where you see what it is that other people are doing and that's what you do. I mean, I, um, so I took up tennis decades ago and turned out, oh, it's interesting, most of my friends uh, sort of taken up tennis. And I dropped it a few years later and turned out, you know, gee, the tennis courts are empty here. I mean, took up cross-country skiing, and well, how about that? These other people do that. Then, I don't know, we lost interest, and then find out our friends, have you been cross-country skiing? No, I don't do that anymore. I mean, and, you know, how about minivans and fondue parties? I mean, it's just, you, you do things because other people do them. And uh, one kind of very practical, uh, important consequence of this was worked out by uh, Debbie Prentice um, and forgetting her colleague's name at Princeton, um, which um, has a reputation of being a heavy drinking, drinking school. Schools, Ivy League schools, like other schools, I guess Midwestern State Universities too, some are drinking schools, some are not such drinking schools. Princeton, it was regarded as a serious problem. So they had the idea let's find out how much drinking goes on. Because they had the strong intuition that less drinking goes on than people think goes on because 
on Monday, you know, the kid comes in and says, ah, oh, I'm stoned all week and I do that. No, I actually was studying all, all Sunday for the hour exam. <laughs> but I mean, um, setting where people are, are drinking a lot, you get prestige for drinking a lot. And also, if you do, if you get good grades, despite the fact that you're drinking a lot, then that makes you look smarter. So they found out how much people are actually drinking. And then they gave this, fed this information back to students. Said, this is how much drinking goes on. So drinking plummeted uh, down to something closer to the level of, of what was actually uh, uh, going on. So people, um, uh, or here's something that saved hundreds of millions of dollars and thousands of no, actually millions of tons of carbon dioxide uh, not being poured into the atmosphere in California by a social psychologist uh, team led by uh, Cialdini, Bob Cialdini. He hangs tags on people's doors if they're using more electricity than their, than their neighbors, saying, you're using more electricity than your neighbors, and that sends electricity usage down. Um, However, you shouldn't hang a tag on their door saying you're using less electricity than your neighbors because then people start using more electricity. Unless you put a smiley face on the bottom. You're using less electricity than your neighbors and smiley, oh, that's a good thing. 